I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you're a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will live in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Good morning. I'm Rob Jacobson, and I'm glad you're here today. And it's always fun to get up and uh, speak right after you hear a verse about weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, you know, thanks for that, Bar or Ken. I appreciate that. That was awesome. Well, if you didn't know, in my former life, before I was in full-time ministry, I was a math teacher. So um, this is like dad joke, math joke extraordinaire. But, you know, there are three kinds of people in this world, right? Those who can do math and those who can't. So if you're in the se come on. So if you're in the second group, uh, I think you'll really appreciate this uh, one of my beloved comics from uh, Far Side Gary Larson. This is a mathphobic's nightmare. Okay, now listen up. Nobody gets in here without answering the following question. A train leaves Philadelphia at 1 p.m. It's traveling at 65 miles per hour. Another train leaves Denver at 4 p.m. Do you need some paper? You remember these from school? The uh, the, the train collision problems? Well, actually, my favorite math word problem actually came out of a sociology class in college. Uh, I went to a state university, and uh, this secular state university offered a 300-level sociology course called Marriage. Yeah, I know, and I took it as a 21-year-old single guy, because I'm like, oh, I, I, there's got to be skills that I can learn in this class. And there were. We talked about communication, we talked about common problems and conflict, and money, because like the number one problem when people say, um, why are you getting divorced, or why did you get divorced, it's fighting over money. So he said, you know, when you 
graduate from college and when you get uh, your first job, you're going to be really, really tempted to buy your first car, like a new car. And one of the things you're going to have to do is borrow money because you don't have any money. You just got a job, but you don't have money. So you're probably going to borrow, say, let's just say this was a while ago. $20,000 for this new car. And if you find it for 2.9% interest, you're going to pay about $440 a month for four years or $360 a month for five years. And you'll pay either $1,200 in interest or $1,500 in interest, which isn't bad. It's not bad, he said. But after you finish paying for that car, you are in the habit of making payments to the man or the woman or the bank or the car place, wherever you did it from. And so this idea of savings is gonna be something that you're gonna be a little averse to. But eventually, you'll probably start saving. You should at least, he said. So let's just say for sake of argument, you start saving at 30 years old. So at 30 years old, you start putting $200 away per month. That's $2,400 a year. and. Uh, you're going to start doing that at 30. You're going to start with putting $1,000 down because you had saved that. And if you save from 30 to 65, $200 a month, $2,400 a year, your total contributions will be $85,000. And at the end of that, when, you know, like at the end of 65 years old, you will have almost $860,000. Uh, assuming, sorry, I forgot one important point, assuming an 11% annual compounding interest. All right, so, uh, again, pretty good, but he said, if you were to keep driving your old car, remember, he's speaking to like 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds, if you're going to keep driving your old car, and you just, at the end of 22, you start, you, you gather up from that first job $1,000, you put it in the bank or in an IRA, and then you start also doing $200 a month for eight years, just from 22 to age 30. Now, at age 30, it is not going to look like much. You'll have put $20,200 in. You're going to have just over $30,000 in that for the first eight years. But then, say you just stop saving at that point, at 30 years old. You don't put any more money away. All right? Evan, he knows this because he's a finance guy, right? Now, from age 30 to age 65, look what happens. You end up with almost $1.2 million in your account, and you have not put a single cent in after age 30. Over 20 years later, the reason I remember this is not because of the compounding interest, although that was a very powerful factor, it was because after he showed us this, he said, I just want you to consider how you're going to manage the money that will come to you. And I have not forgot it. In the reading we heard today, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes on a long journey and entrusts his wealth to his servants. Now, in some Bibles, it says the servants are called stewards. I don't know if it says that in your Bible. Sometimes we're like, what is a steward? Um, steward is more like an asset manager. This is 
someone who is managing the wealth of the landowner, the, the richest, strongest, powerfulest person in the area. And then the next people that are around him, that the ones that are entrusted or trustworthy, those are the ones that are managing this stuff. You see, in the church today, we often see here stewardship. If you grew up in church, you think stewardship and you think, uh-oh, fundraiser, building campaign. And if you didn't grow up in church and you're like me, an REI member, when you hear stewardship, you're like, oh, take care of the planet. That's what we do. And we should do those things. But... It means so much more than that. And again, in your Bible, I'm not sure what it says. I really like how the NIV, at least the 2011 version, changed it to bags of gold because it used to say talent. And so some people have speculated that because it says that the landowner gave different amounts of talents based on their abilities, that this passage isn't really about money. It's about developing your talents or abilities. Now, I do think that God wants us to develop our talents and abilities, but that's actually not at all what this story is about. A talent at that time was a measure of weight in gold or silver, and how it comes out is about 20 years' worth of daily wages. So when the person, the first servant or steward or asset manager gets five bags of gold, they're getting a hundred years worth of daily wages. I spent two weeks thinking about that. I still can't wrap my head around how much the money that would be. So I'm just going to skip that one. Um, The second person was given two bags of gold, which would be 40 years worth of daily wages. Now that I can wrap my head around a little more because if, if you are someone who works every, you know, an average working career, you're going to have about 40 years worth of daily wages. So imagine getting what you'd make over your entire working career. Imagine getting that right up front. Almost feels a little bit like winning the lottery, but it's not. But how would you invest it and how would you spend it? I think that's a little easier to understand, at least for me. And the last servant is given no small amount of money. One bag of gold is still 20 years' worth of daily wages. And then the master goes on a journey. Now, I couldn't come up with 20 bags of gold or 20 years' worth of even minimum wages because it was like over $600,000. But I did come up with a little bit of money and uh, from my not-good friend, Dave Ramsey, um, have a little visual aid. So I need two adult volunteers that will not be made fun of um, that will help with this visual aid. I can see, thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate that. Oh, and thank you, Colin. This will work fabulous. Now, Aaron is gonna represent our banker. Aaron, you don't work at a bank, do you? Yeah, so so this is not reflective of Aaron. And uh, Colin, you are gonna represent the customer. So for this, Colin, um, you need my visual aid, and you have to understand that my wife is like, you did what? So I took, um, I took real money out of our real account, and my wife would like to make sure that all this gets back in the account. So, but for the illustration, it's your money. Okay. Okay. So you, and, and where I come from, you know, small town Minnesota, that, you know, $1,000 is kind of a good chunk of change. So, you know, it takes a while to get to $1,000. You can't just go withdraw it and, and not have anyone ask questions. But it's your money, okay? Okay. Now, 
you are going to do like something responsible. You're going to go deposit your money in the bank. So you can go to the banker and you can take that. There you go. And so she will handle that money for you. And then you're going to go away and you're going to, you don't have to go very far. And so a few months are going to go by. And then, um, you know, there's this whisper, like, you know, it's been a while since you got some golf clubs, right? Like you do. I mean, uh, I mean, a new set of irons would tremendously help your game, right? I mean, that's what my dad tells me. That's why I keep getting these hand-me-downs because he's like, oh, I needed a new set of clubs. So the golf fairy whispers to you, you should go buy new clubs. You need new clubs. Does anyone have the need fairy that comes to their house? Like, you need, the, you need this. So you're going to go back to the bank. But um, the banker has the money stored away. So um, first you go to the teller and you introduce yourself and they ask how they can help. And, you know, so, you know, hi. Hi. I, Oh, sure. We would be happy to help you. And we look up your name and then we're like, oh, you're Colin. Oh, Miss Erin would like to see you in her office. So that might cause alarm, correct? Okay. But you walk over. And so Erin says hello to you. And you, you're asking for your money. I need my money because I need golf clubs. Oh. But see... Aaron doesn't have your money. Oh, I don't have your money. Because Aaron needed some beach therapy in Cancun, right? And she didn't have enough money, so she used your money. I hope that was okay. I really need golf clubs. So is that how you'd respond in real life? Just... I really need golf clubs. She just got to go to the warm beaches of Cancun. And way cheaper than a therapist, and sometimes more effective, although I know your wife's a therapist, so they do do good work. Better quickly get back on track. So how would you feel about this? Uh, really angry. Because I really need my golf clubs. And you put your money in the bank. So it would be safe. Yeah. And so it would make interest. So I would have more money. Because we all know that you can't get a good set of irons for $1,000, right? <laughs> right. Now, Aaron would never do this personally or probably professionally, but would you agree that we would be a little bit upset and much less likely to trust the bank? Yes. Yes, okay. So do you think I could take... I'm, I'm just not going to count it right now, and hopefully it's all okay. Um, thank you guys for coming up. Now, let's change the scenario a bit, because we're not the customer. We're the banker. See, if God is the owner, then what we have comes from him, and he deposits that in our accounts, and he will come back. Now, God's not against nice things. God's not against you taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your family, you've been taking care of those that are in or in a greater sphere of influence. But I believe 
that everything that we have ultimately comes from God. And if he's the owner, then he entrusts those resources to us and, I believe, deeply wants to have a say in how we use that money. We need to treat it like it's his. Because it's his. The reason we want to consider how we're going to manage the money we're given, like my marriage professor said, is because God owns it all. In Jesus' story, the landowner represents God because he's the one who entrusts it to them. The Bible clearly says this over and over, but specifically in Proverbs 24, 1, or Psalm 24, 1, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And in Proverbs 50, 10, it says, for the animals of the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You have to remember that in those times, forests and cattle were like bank accounts. They were like jobs. They had resources. They could be used and reused, and you could multiply that. And so it's all God's. So if God's the owner, then we are these stewards or patrons. The ancient feudal system had people that would sponsor things to have work done or to have labor done or to have loyalty. The stewards in the time of Jesus would have been like the stewards in the Lord of the Rings where there's a master of the realm and then someone who manages everything in it. And so if we're going to talk about real stewardship, then we have to talk about the fact that we are asset managers for God. We manage the Lord's wealth. And stewardship is about how we handle the Lord's wealth. So if God is the owner and if we're stewards, then not only what I give is a spiritual decision, but how I spend is a spiritual decision. God cares about when I buy a car or when I go on vacation or even when I get my groceries or I pay off debt. God wants to be involved in those conversations and he's a good God. He's an understanding God. He's a gracious God, but he wants us to have conversations about that. See, if God owns it all, and how we spend it matters, then what we do with money displays our relationship with God. Consider how the story is even, even put together. It says that the first and second servant both said to the master when he returned, Master, you entrusted me with your wealth. See, to entrust someone is to give them authority and responsibility because you believe in them. The master believes in these servants, so he entrusts them. And the first and second servant say, you entrusted me and I multiplied this. Have you ever wondered how that got multiplied? I mean, they didn't have casinos, so they probably didn't go play slots but they probably did have to take risks with that money. They had to look for opportunities. It's like the song, it's not too different from the songs that we just sang a few minutes ago. A child of God deeply loved looking around the world around us, filling us with God's heart and love for those around us, and then we take opportunities. We listen to God when he's like, hey, I think that single mom needs some extra help with her groceries. 
hey, I think that person needs you to pay for their, their gas in their car. We're invited into those opportunities. Sometimes God actually causes our money, I believe, to be multiplied so that we can take those opportunities more freely. But we've got to see them. We've got to work a plan. We've got to take the risks. And when, at least in this story, when these servants do, they are commended as good and faithful. It was really more about faithfulness than amount. When you hear, like, one servant, according to their ability, got five bags of gold, one servant got two, and one servant got one, do you ever wonder, like, which servant am I? I think when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally the five. Yeah, I have so many good abilities. I mean, sometimes it's hard to know what to pick. And then I got to adulthood. I know, I had you know, humility issues, but then I got to adulthood, and then I'm like, oh, man, this is hard. It's hard to work. It's hard to be competent. It's hard to follow your boss's direction. It's hard to do what you're told. It's hard to stay on task sometimes, so maybe I'm a one. Maybe I'm just a one person, one big person. I think regardless of how you see yourself, what the more important question is, is how you see the master. God, you entrusted me with this, and here is what I did. Master, you entrusted me with this, and here's what I did. Those first two servants did that, and the master's response is pretty profound. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Here's the kicker. Come and share in your master's happiness. God gives us resources Not because he wants to test us, I think sometimes he does, but ultimately so we can say, or he can say to us, come and share in your master's happiness. See, the third servant said to his master, Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. I was so afraid of losing anything. I don't know how reliable these banks are. I'm just going to hide it. How does that servant see his master? Is he afraid? Is he at all motivated? Is he afraid of making a mistake? Is he honest? Is he saying it? A, a true thing, this servant is commended as wicked and lazy. See, I think we're called to be asset managers individually and as a church. And managers don't have the rights to the money, but they do have responsibilities to the money. And like these servants, God calls us and invites us into his plan. He loves us unconditionally. He redeems us completely because of what Jesus has done, but then he invites us to be agents in his kingdom, to work and to live and to play and to, and to do so in a way where God is blessed and honored. Some people say it like this, like he is, we, we make him famous by the way we live. See, if God owns it all and what we do with it displays our relationship, then when we give it away, we actually end up with more, not less. 
Now that goes against elementary school math. In elementary school math, we learned that if we had $1,000 and we gave away or spent 100, we ended up with 900. That's how I learned math. That's how I tried to teach math. I don't know how they're doing it now. I know it's new, but it's been new about every five years. So basic arithmetic works that way. But in God's economy, it doesn't. Over the life, over your life, over my life, the, the money I give away, even if I end up with less financially, I never end up with less in total. Whether that's actual finances or whether that's in emotional health or in relational capital or in kingdom wealth. See, it's really the difference. I don't think it's mystical or magical. This isn't prosperity theology. It's just the reality that, like, if I have money in my hand and I hold it like this, not only do people wonder what I'm upset about, but my dogs back away from me. Like, everyone understands that when you're doing this, you need to have people back away. And yet, when you open your hands small children, puppies, people come towards you. This is welcoming and friendly. This is closed and sometimes violent. Now this, like no money will get out, but it's really hard, if not impossible, to have any come back in. This, well, some might get out, but more can come back in. And it's not just true of our money. I think it's an indication of our spirit. If I am closed, then God can't do much with my heart. If I'm open, he can speak. He can work through me. He can pour into me, and he can do that for each of us. See, Proverbs 11.24 in the message translation says this, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. So before we had a law that was given through Moses and given by God to the people of Israel, we had this guy named Abraham who was called and invited and blessed by God to go to a new land. In, in his story, he has this sacred encounter, this God moment, and how he responds is he gives a tenth of his increase away. That's where the Bible starts talking about this word tithing. It just means a tenth. After the Holy Spirit comes on all kinds of people in all kinds of places, their hearts are touched by God and they give away generously. Acts 2, 24, or 44 and 45 says that the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and they shared the money with those in need. Now, I don't know if that was 10%. I think it actually was probably far beyond that. But many say, for Christians, that this starts with 10% of our increase. See, I think it starts with, are we open or closed? See, the 10th is supposed to be given first because it represents the whole that if we can give the first tenth, 
it's representative of being able to give away everything. When God said you need to um, do the Passover and you need to consecrate your firstborn son, it was representative of the whole family. If you would do that for the firstborn son, it was like you were doing it for the whole family. That's why I think that the 10th is so important. It's not because God needs our money. I used to believe that the reason we were supposed to give or tithe is because God needed our money. And then I realized how arrogant that was. Like, really? He owns everything. If he really needs my money, he could just, like, take it and there would be a pile of ashes right here, which would be a little scary, but he could do that. So then I thought, well, it's because the church needs our money. But the church budget is way bigger than my budget. It's not about God. It's not about the church. It's actually about him. See, when we give, we act like him. God is this giver. He created us in his image, and when we give, we reflect that image. Anytime we give, we reflect that image. I think it's possible for people to be generous without being Christ followers, but I think it's impossible for us to be authentic Christ followers and not be generous. It is incompatible with God. God gave his first and best one and only son. He didn't hoard his son. He didn't save his son. He didn't just like wait or, I don't know. He freely gave his son to save us, to save me. See, giving doesn't save us. It's not a salvation issue, but it does transform us. When we give, we become more like God and more like Christ. Not only that, but when we give, God frees us to be more creative and more passionate because we have less holding us down. We have less selfishness that's going around. It fights against the materialism of our day and of ourselves. And it's like a muscle or exercise. See, the more I give, the more I become generous. The easier it gets, the stronger and better I get at it. It's not supposed to be this one and done thing. Giving is also a form of praise and worship. God calls us to be cheerful givers. God says, come before me with gladness. Bring your offering in. That certainly means money and actually more than that. It's this joy that happens inside of us. And I didn't realize this, but giving involves spiritual warfare. Not just praise and worship, but also spiritual warfare. In Malachi 3, 11, it says that God will rebuke the devourer. At least that's the literal translation of it when we faithfully give. This is like the way it's written is, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. Now, I don't think this means that nothing bad will happen to us if we give, but I believe it does say we serve a big God who protects us and meets our needs. So, for my family, I just had to laugh because we're, we're trying to live, give 10%, save 10%, live on the rest, so we have an emergency fund, and we got a tax return on Monday night, right? Right? Like, I think it was Monday night. And so we're like, woo, 
yes. Like we had to not pay money in, we got money back, and I'll confess, like between Monday night and Wednesday morning, I had not prayed about what God might want to do with that money. I just, I'm just being honest. My wife thought maybe the Holy Spirit said countertops, but I was still, I was, I was thinking golf clubs. No, I'm te- not true. So when I woke up to get on the treadmill and work out, I'm like, it's a little chilly. And then when I came upstairs, I'm like, oh, it's really chilly. Man, am I getting old? Like my circulation or something. No, the thermostat said 56 degrees and dropping. So possibly the tax return went to go pay for the new furnace, the 16 or 17-year-old furnace. And, and then some, and then an emergency fund. And I'm like, oh, thanks, God. I have this great sermon illustration to talk about how you protect, meet our needs. We can be, live in obedience. And I'm like, ah. It reminds me that God is not looking for us to do this perfectly. We don't, we don't go, oh, I'm, I'm never going to help someone if I can't do it perfect. Oh, I'm never going to serve in church if I can't do it perfect. But somehow we believe if I can't get giving right, I'm not going to start because I don't want to do it bad, or I don't want to do it wrong, or I don't want to do it a little. Remember that story of the feeding of the 5,000? This little tiny lunch was never going to be enough, but still someone brought it forward, and God in his, in his grace made it enough. That's what I think God is asking us to do, is to walk in understanding that we are beloved by God regardless of how good or bad we do at any part of our lives, but especially giving. We are unconditionally loved. He delights in seeing us walk in his kingdom and walk in his love and share in his goodness. That's what it means to be faithful. It's not about amount. It's about faithfulness. So, why? Why do we do this? Well, I have two teenage daughters. If you know me, you know this. One of them right now is really, really into healthy eating and healthy living. Like, like I'm going to get up at 4.30. I'm going to go work out before school. And then sometimes she'll occasionally come home and make health shakes. Now, where I come from, shakes have chocolate and ice cream in them. But she, this is not what it is. It's like kale and spinach and kiwi. And she's like, mm, these are good. Dad, you should have this. You want to fight off that dad bod, don't you? This will help. Okay. So I'm like, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But she'll always leave like one to two or three inches of her health shake for me. And she'll set it in the sink. You should, you should drink that. And occasionally, but, but that's usually how it goes. And I in, instead enjoy my frosted mini wheats and then I go over to the toaster and I put in my beautiful piece of wheat toast and, you know, let it pop up. And then, you know, you've got to flip it and do the second one. And I have to stand next to the toaster, which is right by the sink, because everyone knows that it, 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 once it pops up, you have 10 seconds to get the peanut butter on for optimal melting. This is just how it goes, people. So uh, I really like my peanut butter. And so I stand next to the sink. And so often when I'm doing that, I'll turn on the faucet and start getting the nasty chunks out of her health shake. And so at first I have to turn away because all of the chunks are swirling and it's kind of nasty. But eventually, I'll, after I'm done meticulously spreading my toast to every corner of the piece of bread, which is now golden brown and crunchy, then I'll come back and the glass is almost clean. 
all the bits and crud and nastiness is washed out because I left the sink on for one or two minutes, letting it... Now, science people call this the law of displacement. That eventually that clean water is going to make the nasty stuff get out. But see, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Discipline, says this is how believers can glorify God. By investing their time and their money into sections of the marketplace and culture to displace the enemy's strongholds. When you and I take risks, when we go into godly, ungodly places and live godly lives, not in judgmental and hateful ways, but in light-bearing, gracious, and good ways, we displace the culture, the nasties, the stuff that the world says is good, which we know isn't good, and the kingdom of God advances. That's why this matters. But we've got to step in where we feel shame or where we feel like it's not enough. God wants to do things in us and through us. And when we're faithful with a little, God lets us be faithful with more. And he's the owner and we get to manage it for his glory. I want you to consider where this hits you. And uh, if you are interested, we are looking to put a Financial Peace University class together. Um, just email us at info at restorationcub.org. We don't have all the details figured out on it yet, but um, if you want to know more and you want to do a nine-week class and saying, hey, I need help in this area. No shame, no divulging every financial secret or mistake you've made. It's just a place to learn wisdom and to get help as you go about it. We have one more week of this series, but um, just wanted to put that out there for you uh, before the band comes up. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you uh, talk so much about areas of our life that impact us every day. God, certainly the kingdom of heaven, our faith, but also our finances. I thank you that you made a way for us where there was no way that this is not about how good we are at something or how perfect we, we live, but about how you have lived. God, that ultimately from your grace and the riches of your kindness that we can step into places where we might not feel adequate. Step into places where we can use our resources for your kingdom to advance your goodness, your glory, and your love. God, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we're at today about how we can join you in that. Thank you for your mercy, God. Let's live in the reality of your return and of your settling of accounts.